You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. On this Easter Sunday, we examine the eyewitness testimonies to the resurrection of Christ and celebrate the miracle of his victory over the grave. Let me pray for us and we will dive into what God has for us um, today. Father, thank you so much that he is risen, Lord. Father, do we believe that today? Do we trust that? Have we seen that? Lord, I pray that everybody from the, within the sound of my voice has seen him for who he is. But if not, maybe today's the day that, that they were brought here to hear the good news, to see the witnesses, and to ask of themselves, do you believe in miracles? Father, I just pray for your Holy Spirit to work. Lord, you have just called me to deliver a message. I have no power. It is all in your word and your spirit. I cannot change anybody. I cannot convince anybody. But Lord, your Holy Spirit can change people in an instant. Give them a, take them from having a hard heart and give them a heart that sees you for who you are. You are Lord, you are God, and you love us so dearly. Father, I just pray for your help, and I pray that you will help all of us as we listen today to your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 1980 Olympics, the U.S. hockey team, made up of mostly amateur players, took down the six-time gold medalist Russian team, who were really just, they, they were a bunch of professionals, and, and Russia paid them to, to do nothing but hockey and, and play hockey, but we had rules back then where it was only our amateurs that we would send. And, and, and it was just a, an amazing victory in Olympic history way back in 1980. I was eight years old, and I, I vaguely remember this. And really, what I remember about this, I don't remember much of the game. I'm, I'm not a real big hockey, hockey fan, but I would imagine most of us have heard the call that came from this game. Right, Al Michaels made made this amazing call at the at the end of this game. Whenever it was over, and, and we beat the Russians, who were this insurmountable uh, team that could never be beat, and, and these lowly American amateurs beat him. And, and what did he say? He said, "Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe in miracles?" And that's a question that all of us are going to bump into at some point in our life. Do you believe in miracles? Unfortunately, the predominant answer today will be no. Because why? Because our science, we, are, we have advanced, man. We've, we've advanced past these people that, that wrote the, the, the Bible and, and lived back then. We, we're so far advanced past them. Science says, nope, that can't happen. So therefore, we believe it. And it can't happen. Right? Science explains everything away. This is the age that we live in today. You know, the funny thing is, is even though how far advanced we've come and how sophisticated we are and how much better we are and how our technology does help it, it's a very good thing. All the wonderful, wonderful advances that we've had. But you know, the, the, the other characteristic it seems of in the time of our age is, it's kind of been described as the age of anxiety. I mean, you look around us and you look in your own heart and when you talk to people, they're just anxious. 
all the time. They have no peace at all. They're anxious, they're worried, they're nervous. You know, and, and coming out of a pandemic doesn't help much of that. None of us have been through that. That was all new to all of us. But we're kind of in this anxious age, right? And, and, and people are looking around for non-anxious people. And I, I would argue that, that the, the first place they should be able to look because of the risen Savior, because our future is secure, is the church and is those who profess faith in Christ. We are the ones they should be looking for, for a non-anxious present. The strange thing, strange thing about this age of anxiety is that we live in a time in world history where material things are the most plenty of any generation that has ever walked the earth. Again, with our technology, we do, you know, we have so much of material things that help us through life. I mean, just stop and think about before the, the, the washing machine, how many hours it would take you to wash your clothes, you know, raking them on the thing and hanging them up and doing all the things. So it, it, we have plenty, but yet we're still so anxious. So the question really is, if you think about it, why are we so full? Why do we have so much, but yet we still feel so empty? We're so empty all the time. One explanation could be is that we have lost faith. I mean, if you think about the last two or three years of, of your life, how many things that you've, you've looked at, you've trusted in, and they've came, come tumbling down, and then you've had to step back and say, oh, I need to kind of reevaluate that, right? And in fact, so many times we, we are at each other's throats trying to, trying to hold on to these things that were tumbling down, that many times we lost sight of the gospel and, and who we are in Christ and where our true hope comes from. Again, we're coming off an election where we have lost faith in the voting process, where we have lost faith in the electoral process, in our government, in our leaders, and I think in many ways ourselves as human beings, where we're just always at each other's throats. It's in social media, it's in your workplace, it's on campus, at school. We're just always divided and trying to be at each other. Always telling each other that you're wrong. And maybe, just maybe, we're reminded of, of evil and the common enemy and the real enemy as we look over to the Ukraine and Russian conflict. And even in that, how many good stories of, of humans leaving loved ones and, and fighting and for their freedom and fighting for what is good and right and then giving us a little bit of hope for us humans that we've lost faith in. But let me just say this. When we lose faith in these things like leaders and governments, ourselves, that might not be a bad thing. Because when false faiths die, what really we are seeing is the funeral of our idols. That's what we're seeing. It's the funeral of our idols, of false beliefs, of false systems. But unfortunately, much of the loss of faith has even affected the church. 
Why? Because many churches and, and many folks have, have stepped away from the Word of God and having faith that these scriptures are true and real and without error. And they've gone and missed and they've gone in error. And, and we pray each day that they will come back to the gospel and they will come back to the, to the truth of the Bible. Because this is where we find truth. What we need to, to restore this faith is to believe in a miracle. What we need to restore this faith is to believe in a miracle. This is why we celebrate Easter. The, the miracle of Jesus' resurrection. Now what we need to do when we start thinking about the resurrection of Christ, miracles, the supernatural, is understand where we uh, right now are in terms of thinking and maybe some of the worldviews and how most people would hear something like, hey, do you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day? I mean, if you just ask a, a person, and, and I know many of our college students through, through our, our time of, of using the banners and, and different tools just to engage what people believe on campus, it, it's interesting to, to, to see this and, and, and to think in some of the answers that come back, hey, do you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day? How, how, would, how do people receive that today? How have people been conditioned to hear these kinds of claims? Now, the biggest obstacle facing your belief in this claim is the fact that we have conditioned, we've been conditioned to believe that the only way to know truth is through science. It's through science. Does science give us truth? Absolutely, but it's not the only way. If you go back before the 1800s, they believed theology would give you truth. Then they moved in a little bit 1800s and 1900s, if philosophy would give you truth. But it seems like today that, that unless science gives us the truth, then that's the only way that we're going to find truth. Science has become the ultimate authority. The problem with that is nobody can live like that. You can't put every category of your life in a scientifical category. You can't live like that. I can't live like that. We can't live like that. Why? Because we all feel. How are you going to put love and guilt and sadness in a scientifical category? Suffering, evil. There's no scientific category for that. We all have deep emotions. We're made in his image that science simply cannot explain. So as the authority of science has risen over the years, we see a despairing kind of skepticism about the gospel, about what the Word of God says. This is not just outside the church, but this is also inside the church, where we just don't believe that it is sufficient, that it is enough. We always have to have Jesus plus something or the scriptures plus something. I'm just here to pro proclaim today that it is enough. People today are not hostile towards the gospel. You know, we, we don't find hostility towards the gospel. What we, what we find is apathy, apathy towards the gospel. People living their day-to-day -day lives just kind of assume whatever science says is true. We don't question it, and science has told us supernatural isn't true, that God isn't real, and so therefore I have to carve out some little way to make a meaningful life for myself.
And of course, the scriptures challenge that. The scriptures challenge that on every front. The scriptures tells us that, that, no, you have an identity. It's given to you by God. You have a purpose. It's given to you by God. Even though we live in an age with the rise of science as the authority of truth, the funny thing is spirituality has not gone anywhere. Right? If you ask somebody, are you a spiritual person? Well, sure I am. But now you better ask some more questions to find out exactly what do they mean by that, right? It hasn't gone anywhere. They'll say, I'm spiritual, but I'm just not religious. I, I don't do that church thing. I don't do that organized religion thing, right? And I'm certainly not into any religion that says there's a book without errors that tells us the story of blood atonement by the Son of God for sinners. That's crazy. That's abuse. That's all kinds of different things. The minute we say anything like that, Oh, well, I'm spiritual, but not religious. That's, that's the answer. And that is an interesting point for us to seize upon because for all the wonderful claims of science to explain everything, people still desperately want to know there's something beyond the material world. So people are, are spending so much of their material money to, to go into space to see what's beyond. It's, it's something that... that that we're actually trying to answer with, with science and, and the things of this world just cannot answer it. It's only found in Christ. They want to know that there is something beyond death. That there's something beyond this. Is this all there is? This is why we're so anxious. This is why we're so worried. Because if this is all this is, then then you know what, I'm going to do whatever I want and I'm going to take down whoever is in my way to get what I want and we end up where we are today in the world that we live in today that is so anxious, where people are so worried, they're so on edge. People are searching for meaning and they're looking for it everywhere but the truth of the gospel. They're looking for it in any kind of Eastern spirituality mixed with a little self-help. We'll mix it in a little astrology. We'll do a little Buddhism. We'll do a little Hinduism. We'll, we'll mix it all up and I'll make my own coexist type of thing. But I'm, I'm spiritual. I'm just not religious. And we wonder why we live in this fishbowl, right? We're swimming in this. We don't know it. Until someone comes along and, and points it out, this is what we're swimming in, and we see it. So the question becomes, can we believe the resurrection? Can we believe it? Do you believe it today? Do you truly believe it? Where it affects every everyday life. Do you believe in miracles? Can we still believe that Jesus, the sinless Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, who took to himself body and soul, came down from heaven, lived among us, lived a sinless life, died, died an atoning death, was laid in the tomb, and walked out the third day? Can we still believe that? Or has science pushed that out? Has worry pushed that out? Has our 
mixed up spirituality push that out? Can we believe that today? My answer is yes, we can. Yes, we can believe that. Scriptures tell us. Why can we believe? Because these people, these people that are written down in this book that is not a history book, but it does give us a whole lot of history in it, it is written down how they experienced it, how they walked through it. So today, with the rest of our time, I just want to give you some witnesses. I just want to walk through some witness accounts, and then you got to decide, do you believe their witness account? Do you believe them? Do you believe in miracles? We're going to start in Luke 1 and then move to John 20. If you want to follow along, most of it is going to be up on the board. Let me read Luke 1 through 4. Now, this is Luke, the doctor, right? He's, he's writing down an account. And, and listen to what he says about what he's about to write. We know that Luke wrote uh, the book of Luke and, and the book of Acts, right? Let's read what he says here. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word had delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught." So Dr. Luke opens his gospel writing to Theophilus. This is why he's writing it. He, he wrote Luke in, 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 in the book of Acts to this, maybe it was his, uh, some important person in his life, and he's going to write down an account of all that happened. Not only some of the stuff that he experienced, but some of the stuff that he, right, he diligently searched for and researched and asked about. The book of Luke, which is part one of two, Part account, the second being the book of Acts, of those things that happened while Jesus was on the earth and how the gospel spread by his followers, which is the book of Acts. He tells us why we can believe his account. We were eyewitnesses and ministers. So not only did they see some really amazing things happen, but God, through the Holy Spirit, did some amazing things through them. So this is what Luke is writing down. He's saying, look, I, I've, some, I've seen some amazing things, and I've talked to some people that have seen some amazing things. I have, God has used me to do some amazing things, and you know what? I've talked to people who God has used to do some amazing things. These are eyewitnesses, right? So, Theophilus, I have compiled all that was done into an account. Why? We see this in verse 4 that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught, that everything is true. That everything is true. So the whole purpose of, of Luke writing his account of the gospel and also his account in Acts is so that this man Theophilus and us later on, thousands of years later, as we open up the book, we know that it is true. All that he writes is eyewitness. Dr. Luke, it goes on to say, did so with diligence. He did his research, and the truth that he proclaims came from eyewitnesses. 
It came from eyewitnesses. Now, maybe some of you know or some of you it popped in your brain as you have already read through the maybe part of the Old Testament this year in your reading plan or you just know that an eyewitness account is massive within God's economy, within God's law. That an eyewitness is, is determines whether or not someone is is convicted as guilty or determined to be a liar or determined to sin, eyewitness account is, is massively important. So that's why he's making a, a stressful thing that this is an eyewitness account. Right? This is a massive phrase in the scriptures because if you read the Old Testament law where there are no video cameras, there are no tape recorders in the world that the law of God comes to, what was so important when it comes it came to crime and justice and law was an eyewitness testimony where one, one, test, one witness, two, two witnesses, okay, now we're going to believe that. One, one witness, not so much, but two, we're going to believe that. We know this. This is basically how our law system is, has been based. But although today it just doesn't seem like people can get on a, on a witness stand in a courtroom you know, with, with perjury charges a month and, and all this, and, and they can lie through their teeth. And it just doesn't matter anymore. That would be a whole nother sermon why it's like that. But we won't get into that. But we understand that. We understand the importance of a witness. And all Luke is trying to show us is here was, I was a witness. I talked to witnesses about this thing that we're celebrating today, this resurrection of Jesus, the man that died on a cross, and three days later, he was, he was out of the tomb. He was walking among us. We were eyewitness accounts. The law of God in the Old Testament says things have to be established in the testimony of witnesses. Because when life and death were at stake, witnesses had to tell the truth. It was basic to that society. That is why there was much, such harsh laws if someone was caught lying. Because again, without the aid of the things we have in modern life to show us what happened, basically, if you lied, you died back then. That was the penalty. It wasn't a fine or a day in jail or this, that, and the other. You died if you lied. Everybody knew that, so they didn't lie. So whenever there was two witnesses, it held weight, just like it should today. It holds weight. Which then takes us to the book of John and his eyewitness testimony of what happened on April 5th, A.D. 33. The first eyewitness that John writes about is Mary Magdalene, also known as the one who had seven demons that Jesus casted out of her and one of the few who were at the foot of the cross. So John opens his story. He's going to give us an eyewitness account. This is what happened this day. This is what happened on the morning of April 5th, A.D. 33. I'm going to tell you what, what I experienced and what happened and what these eyewitnesses saw. And then we got to figure out, do we believe the eyewitness account or don't we believe? In John chapter 20, verse 1, it says this, On the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, John, that's what he always calls himself, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. 
So, after taking the Sabbath, right, Jesus was, was crucified on a Friday. He was found without guilt, but the, the crowds were calling out. Instead of, of, of releasing uh, Jesus, they re- released Barabbas, and, and he goes to the cross, and he dies, and, and, and Nicodemus and Joseph take him off of the cross, and, and they bury him. And then comes Saturday. What was Saturday? Saturday was the Sabbath. So nothing's happening on Saturday because all these Jewish people were, were celebrating Sabbath. So Mary gets up early in the morning, and she's going to go and finish the job of, of putting spices and different things on Jesus' body as a normal practice of what they did back then. It was dark out. She did not travel alone, right? There was no streetlights, right? There's no cops on the corner. There's no patrols. There's no cell phone if, you, if you, someone comes up to you. She's not traveling alone. This would not happen back then, right? She was with other women, which the other gospels speak about. But John is telling her story. So don't look at the other things and say, oh, well, this gospel says this and this gospel says this. And it, you can synchronize it all. It might take you a little time, and we can sit down. If, if you really want to do it, we'll sit down and do that. But see, what John is doing is he's trying to give us one eyewitness account. So he only points out Mary here. So don't, don't get caught up in that if you've been reading the accounts of what happened on this day back in AD 33. Again, he's just telling us from her point of view. To her surprise, when she reaches the tomb, the stone is rolled away. Still in a state of grieving, she immediately comes to a conclusion. I mean, this, this woman was, was at the foot of the cross. She, he had, she had seven demons casted out of her. We, none of us have hopefully experienced anything like that, but yeah, that's unimaginable. Do we even believe that happened? Even though there was eyewitness accounts. And Mary would definitely attest to it. That is for sure. So she immediately comes to a conclusion and runs back to where everyone was staying, where they spent time. They're kind of hiding out a little bit because they're, they're afraid of the Jews and the, the Jewish authorities and the, and the Romans that are going to come and take them because they were the, Jesus' disciples. So she runs back. And what did she declare? They have taken him. Now, this is not far-fetched. Grave robbing was very common back then because many times families would would bury their their dead, their loved ones, with um, expensive items, right? And and whenever we think of a tomb, don't think of a a big thing. I know that many of our pictures has has a very large, you know, six-foot opening. It's not, really. It's probably about a a two-and-a-half-foot opening, right? And, and And they get in, and they put the body in, and they have different places to put... But different bodies. So the first thing she's thinking is because of the expensive spices and things that would be used to embalm Jesus, to put to put to wrap him and everything, that they came and they took that. And they stole him. That was her thought. And she runs back and she talks to Peter and John, and we'll get to them in just a minute. But let's let's stick on Mary's story, right? Which jumps we have to jump down to verse eleven to do that. But Mary stood weeping outside a tomb and she wept. Um, she stopped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? 
Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brother and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. I have seen him. He's alive. I have seen him. And that he had said these things to her. Now Mary's conclusion of grave robbers is quickly debunked because when she looks in, she sees two angels. This is showing Mary that the empty tomb cannot be explained by appealing to grave robbers. This is nothing other than the invasion of God's power. Something has happened here. Something supernatural has happened here. They ask a question. Both the angels and Jesus ask the same question. Why are you crying? You know what? And this is not an inquisitive question. This is almost like a a gentle rebuke, like, did you not believe what I told you? Did you not believe that I told you that this temple will fall, but I will raise it in three days? Did you not believe that? That's kind of what what they're, they're doing here. It's not inquisitive. It's more of a gentle rebuke. I mean, after all that Jesus has taught, why are you crying, Mary? Do you not believe? Do you not believe in miracles? Do you not believe? Probably a little frazzled at this point, she feels the presence of another person and turns and there's Jesus. But she does not recognize him. We, we know that in Luke 24, there's another place where two guys were walking with Jesus along Emmaus Road and they did not recognize him. So maybe this could have been some supernatural act at where he's not recognizable or she could just be, I mean, she's grieved. She thinks that the, the body has been, been stolen and then she sees two angels and then someone comes up and she's just trying to get answers because she's still thinking maybe, maybe someone took his body and, and she's thinking that Jesus is the gardener. Hey, now Jesus asked the same question which in the same way is a gentle rebuke. But he follows up with a second question. Who are you seeking? Who are you seeking today, brother and sister? Are you seeking your own kingdom or are you seeking his kingdom? Are you seeking all these spirituality, different things that you've, you've concocted and mixed into a thing and, and this is what you worship? Or are you seeking the true Jesus from the gospel. Who are you seeking today? This becomes an invitation to reflect on the kind of Messiah she was expecting, right? As we learned last Sunday, all these people were, 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 were waiting for the Messiah and they were screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, right? But about half or even more of those people were the same people on Friday night saying, crucify him, crucify him. Why? Because they expected him to be a certain kind of king, a certain kind of Messiah. And so many times we do that today, do we not? We, we leave scripture and, and, we, and we get aired off of scripture in, in a way that we make up a Jesus that, we, that is nothing like the one in the Bible. It's kind of like a Jesus that we put in our back pocket and whenever we need him, we take him out and asking for help and 
Hopefully he gives us help, and if not, well, maybe I won't do that next time. But we need to stick to who Jesus is from the Bible. Again, this is an invitation to reflect on the kind of Messiah she was expecting. Even for this very devoted woman, her estimate of him was still far too small. Remember, most of the people scattered. She was one of the few that was at the foot of the cross with him as he took his last breath. And you know what Jesus does? Just like he does for us. He calls her by name. Mary. Mary. You think back to what Jesus said earlier. The good shepherd calls his own sheep by name. And his sheep will follow him because they know his voice. And suddenly, she recognizes him and cries out in Aramaic, Teacher! Anguish and despair are instantly swallowed up by astonishment and delight. See, whenever we truly see the Lord, the anxieties of this world, the worries of this world, they get swallowed up by who he is and all that he has done for us and everything that he has promised us within the word of God. Just like it happened with Mary. When he calls my name, we just sang that, glory say, when he calls my name, I come out of the grave. Because death no longer has victory. I will live with forever with him in heaven. Mary runs back to the place they were all staying and announces to them all, I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. So this brings us to witnesses number two and three. Remember, Mary ran back after finding the stone rolled away and got Peter and John, the disciples that Jesus loved. We read this in verses three through 10. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. And Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there, and a face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciples who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the, disciple, the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So John reaches the tomb first, but pauses to look in. This is John's character, right? John, John was always cautious, right? He was, he was a thinker. I, I can relate to John a lot. Very cautious, right? But Peter, he just barges right in, right? He, 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 he didn't get to the tomb first, but he, he goes into the tomb first, right? So he goes in, and, and, and that's just who Peter is. He cuts people's ears off. He, he denies Christ because of he, this is who Peter is. Um, they both see the same thing. Jesus' burial cloth lying there, in the cloth that would go around his head to hold his mouth shut, sitting on a ledge folded. Why this detail of these eyewitnesses? The clearest answer brings to mind the contrast with the resurrection of Lazarus. You think about back of the, when Jesus called forth, he called Lazarus' name, just like he called Mary's name. 
Just like hopefully one day he has already called your name or will call your name. And then when Lazarus comes, comes stumbling out because he still has all the grave clothes around him and, and the things around his head and he comes stumbling out of the tomb. Right? But this is different. Lazarus came from the tomb wearing his grave clothes. The additional burial cloth still wrapped around his head. Jesus' resurrection body apparently passed through his grave clothes. Spices in all. The description is powerful and vivid, not something that would have been dreamed up. The fact that two eyewitnesses say it makes their evidence admissible in a Jewish court. Both of them, two, saw the same thing and give us the eyewitness account right here in Scripture. They both saw the same thing. John then steps into the tomb and records these words about himself. He saw and he believed. So you have Mary said, I've seen the Lord. Now you see, John is saying, I see. I have seen and believed. With sudden intuition, he perceived that the only explanation was that the Jesus who had been crucified, the Jesus who had so recently assigned him his mother, remember at the cross, he looked at his mom and he looked at John and he kind of gave his mom to John as like, this is your mom now, take care of her. The Jesus who had been buried in this tomb had risen from the dead. That's his conclusion. We have seen the eyewitness of Mary, Peter, and John. And the last person recorded in this chapter is Thomas. I, I really don't have enough time to unpack all of Thomas because there's a lot there with Thomas. But just let me read four verses of what he said and, and look at the same pattern that I've been trying to, to hit upon throughout our time together. He says this, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So what has happened since the account of Mary, John, and Peter up until this point, there's a little paragraph there that talks about Jesus appearing to the, the rest of the disciples, but Thomas was not there. Right? So now you have all these witnesses. Right? Not two, not ten, not thirty, but over five hundred witnesses is what Scripture tells us. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. What did he say? Only if I see his hands, his side, then I will believe. Mary said, I have seen the Lord. John and Peter, John said, I see and now I believe. And doubting Thomas, this is where we get the idea of doubting Thomas, says, I have seen him, and he is Lord. My Lord and my God is what he calls him. Four eyewitness accounts, three of which make the same claim. I have seen, and now I believe. So then, the resurrection of Christ answers 
what might be the major question of our age. The most important question people are asking and answering, and when not finding a true answer, are despairing over, are anxious over, are worrying about. And that question is this, is there anything beyond nature? And if so, what is it or who is it? And a Christian answers this this way. The triune God made the world and everything in it. And he sent his son because he loves sinners. Even though he should be their enemy and their judge, he loves sinners. Sends his son to live and die and be raised in their place. He took the death that each one of us deserve in our place. So that when the Christian answers the question, is there anything beyond nature, they answer with a resounding yes. Because of the resurrection. And the proof is as solid as the empty tomb that the God who rules nature, the God who made nature is also the God who would come down and live among us and teach us about ourselves and bring us back to his Father and pour out the Holy Spirit on us so that for maybe the first time ever in our lives, we can actually have hope. We can know for sure what happens when we die. Do you believe in miracles? Will you allow these witnesses to be your window to see Jesus as Lord this Easter? Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have not seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that we have witnesses that have given us accounts of Jesus being alive. His resurrection is true. There are multiple witnesses with multiple accounts. And they're all begging the question, have you seen him today? Will you allow these witnesses to be your window to see Jesus as Lord today? That's what he's calling us. He's asking us. Father, I pray for anyone that's here that may not know you or is listening through the podcast or listening through the video, Lord, that if they do not know you, Lord, that today is the day of salvation for them, that you have changed their hearts and now they may be able to respond in repentance, that they may stop trusting in this world and themselves and turn and trust in your word. They may turn and trust in the eyewitnesses and they may celebrate the hope they have because Jesus is alive and that we will spend eternity with him We will never die if we have seen him as Lord. Lord, I pray that that is true for every one of us within the sound of my voice. We give you all the praise and all the glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. 
To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.